Hello and welcome to Name Drop San Diego. On this episode, we're talking to Shane Harris, president and founder of the People's Alliance for Justice and a national civil rights activist. Harris just returned from Minneapolis, where he met with the family of George Floyd, a black man who was killed by the police there on Memorial Day. Four officers have been charged in his death. One was charged with second-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter, and the three others were charged with aiding and abetting in the killing. We recorded this episode on the day of Floyd's memorial service as America headed into its 10th straight night of protests over police brutality. Protests have taken place in all 50 states, including California. Meanwhile, the city of La Mesa was dealing with the controversial arrest of a 23-year-old Black man that led to its own public outcry. After several days of local protests, La Mesa Police Department announced the man would not face prosecution. Shane Harris has been at the forefront of these protests, speaking in Minneapolis and working with Black leaders here in the San Diego area to push for police reforms and racial justice. The killing of George Floyd is about to make a turn in America. And people who don't represent our interests, they will be called out and their attendance will be taken. It's a new day. That was a clip of Shane speaking at a gathering of local leaders in La Mesa this week. Just a small sample of the sort of public speaking he does as an activist. Shane called in to discuss his trip to Minneapolis and share a little of the private side of such a public speaker. We just wanted to note here that the day after this recording, Shane Harris announced that he tested positive for the novel coronavirus. We want to say before we get started that we're wishing Shane the best as he self-quarantines. Here's our interview. Shane, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, you guys. Really appreciate you. So you just returned from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, Tell us what you were doing there and how was that experience? Well, uh, I was uh, called in by some of the local activists in the Minneapolis area. Uh, Also was uh, heading there to deliver a check to the family of George Floyd. I had a chance to meet with the brother of George Floyd, Terrence Floyd, and uh, also to discuss legislation that we passed in uh, California, AB 392, that is the most currently the most proactive progressive police legislation in the country uh, on a statewide level. Uh, we passed the most statewide level, uh, most progressive statewide level policy around policing. And so I had a chance to meet with uh, the local activists and uh, even some of the local uh, legislators slash decision makers in the area to talk about this legislation and how critical it could be. And so those are the main reasons why I ended up going to Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wow. Congratulations. That's a big deal. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, no, I mean, um, I would say, you know, that it was uh, it was at the help of two local business leaders here in San Diego, Mark Arabo and Sam Nezabot. They made a donation uh, to us that helped us to actually give more money to the family of George Floyd as well. And uh, and so, you know, one of the things that you see on the ground there is this real need. to to organize toward long-term plans and strategy and reform. And uh, we're trying to bring that message back here to the West Coast to let people know that, uh, you know, looting and rioting uh, is one thing and reform and 
progress moving forward of where we are headed is another. And so uh, I had the chance to meet with some of the local activists speaking at rallies, uh, spoke on the freeway to 11,000 people on the, I believe the I-35 freeway. Uh, that was where you saw that truck that ran through, tried to run over protesters on the freeway. We're still wondering how that truck got onto the freeway. So it, it was an experience, a historic moment for sure. And I felt it was important for me to be there with the local activist and with the brother Terrence Floyd as he addressed uh, what must be done moving forward. And what did he have to say? What is the message the Floyd family wants to get out there? Well, obviously the main thing is that they want people to understand, and this is from what I understand of what he has shared and conveyed to several of us and, and publicly, is the need for, you know, peaceful, strategic assembly that pushes forward to the future goal. Where are we going? What are we doing? Where are we headed? What's needed? What reforms are needed? And so they really have conveyed that. I don't think I need to tell you that. I think he said it himself, that it is imperative that people understand that looting and rioting and all of these other things that are going on in the name of the family and in the name of black people, if I could say that, uh, really doesn't speak to the pulse of what our community is in need of. And so he has conveyed that it is imperative that uh, people understand that this is uh, a moment where we need to be strategic, look at the future, look at the reforms needed. George Floyd needs to be a turning point in America, not just a moment. And, um, and so certainly uh, that message has been convey conveyed and it's something that we 100% support. You know, there's been some police reform here in San Diego in the past week, as I know you know. You know, the police department and the sheriff's department have said they'll stop using the carotid restraint. Um, also, the mayor says he supports putting a measure on the November ballot uh, to create a citizen's review. Um, what do you think of those developments and is any more needed? Well... Um, I think the mayor has taken, uh, and particularly, I want to commend uh, San Diego City Councilwoman Monica Montgomery for her longstanding fight of police reform. She has been a great leader uh, on this issue. She started on this focus, and she has worked in partnership with us to, you know, to to deal with this. So. I have to commend uh, her, her leadership. Uh, I also want to commend Councilwoman Vivian Moreno of District 8 uh, for clearly being, you know, releasing an aggressive uh, strategy as well in regard to a lot of these issues and understanding the longstanding need uh, for continued reforms. Uh, and then obviously, the Racial Justice Coalition, which has been a part of fighting in the city of San Diego, not on the county level or really not on the national level, but in the city of San Diego, they led that fight to end the use of the carotid chokehold restraint. And and so I name all those people because it's a coalition effort. Everybody was a part of this. And the Chief Neeslet, Chief David Neeslet, taking a major stand and getting this done, uh, deciding uh, that it was morally right in this moment. 
Uh, obviously, it's a moment that we're all going through. But for him to have decided to do this, it was a great step that he took. So I think that all everybody, the mayor included, of San Diego needs to be commended. But I think there's a lot of work to do moving forward. Uh, in particular, we've, we've got to uh, continue to address comprehensive de-escalation policy and training for the SDPD. Uh, we need substantial reforms to our use of force, to the use of force policies and officer trainings, uh, you know, continue to be necessary. And so we need to continue to see uh, just how committed and obviously we need an independent police. Uh, you know, we need more independence on the Citizens Review Board uh, in the city of San Diego. There's not enough independence on that board. And so there is a measure that's being pushed put potentially put on the ballot this November that would allow that. And I highly encourage people to vote for that, but there's going to be a lot of work needed moving forward. You know, I have suggested for the longest that we needed an independent police commission, like other big, like other big cities have. Um, the independent review board is supposed to be something of that nature. And so by creating uh, more independence, uh, which translates to trans to transparency i think that is really how we can make progress in building this this between this gap of police and community we've seen you in the news and doing activism here in san diego but you also do this on a national scale and this isn't your first time uh, going to support a grieving family and community after the death of a black man at the hands of police why is it so important to you to be there in person well, I think it's important to be there in person because the job, I think, particularly for me as a minister, is to comfort grieving uh, grievance. And to be there in person, uh, it's a lot easier to provide that. But I think also, um, you know, in a situation like this, where you are at a turning point in America, and in particular, when you look at this his history that's happening in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, it was important for me to be there with the local activists. And, you know, I feel that it is important uh, that I made that trip. Uh, taking the risk, even in the middle of a pandemic, to go. Black people are taking this risk because the pain is real. Uh, and I've said for the longest, or at least over the course of the last month, Black people are dealing uh, with uh, two pandemics, COVID-19 and racism slash police brutality. So um, I think that it was important for me to take the risk and, you know, that we, we do what we need to do uh, to support families like this. And, and, and so I felt it was important to do that and to give this family, uh, 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 my support in person as the national president of the People's Alliance for Justice, to put the check in somebody's hand, to make sure that um, that this family and the community in Minneapolis knows that the People's Alliance for Justice is with them and 100% committed to the fight for justice all the way. That's why I'll make another trip back to Minneapolis, because when the cameras are gone, when all of this is gone, we're still here working. And I'll head back again to work with that community on legislation and goals uh, that we need to address moving forward. And I think 
Minneapolis, Minnesota as a turning point in America. And we will work with that local community to uh, address next steps there and on a national scale in regard to police reform. What do you learn from these personal interactions? It's happened again and again, and, and you must carry a lot with you away from those um, encounters. Yeah, well, I think you brought it up. You know, I have done eulogies. I did Alfred Alongo's eulogy in 2016, the police shooting out of El Cajon, California. I spoke at the funeral of Stephon Clark. You know, having been involved in this for a long time now, the last decade, certainly, uh, probably the last 13 years, it certainly does get tiring and it certainly does uh, become concerning. One, because you realize you're a black man and you could be pulled over by police. I could be the, I could be George Floyd. I could be Stephon Clark. I could be Alfred Alongo. And I realize that simply is because of the color of my skin. And it simply is because of the, the, the challenge that I wage. Also, the other thing is that people's, I think that people's pain is is a real uh, is a real issue here. I think that people are are very concerned about lip service and not really getting anything done in a, in a larger context. And so, uh, you know, this is certainly a moment where we need to see leadership step up. And we haven't seen a whole lot of leadership in this area. So having done this for as long as I have and having comforted a lot of families, it gets tiring. It gets, uh, you know, tiring because you see a lot of people, government officials, elected leaders with lip service. They put a tweet up and they say Black Lives Matter and they think that's the end of it. You see people march for a week and then next week it's over. And next month we go to the next police shooting. And there's another family grieving. And we, like my organization and other institutions that do this work every day, we're doing this every day. So it gets tiring to see these people that hopscotch our community. And yet we're here every day doing this and we need allies all day, every day moving forward, not just because it's a moment in the media. So it's tiring. Uh, because I've done this for the last decade. I've been there with a lot of families. I've stood for, stood up against a lot of injustices. And I'm telling you, you know, seeing this all the time and seeing how people continue to to hopscotch in and out of this uh, movement, it, it, it's it's really, uh, it's something to see and it's tiring. And it, I, I really continue to encourage people that this should not just be a moment this time. It should be a turning point. And we need people on board full time uh, to be a part of this movement so we can really get real reform done. Do you feel like this is a turning point? I do. I, I, I've seen a lot of these incidents. Like I've said, I've never seen a turnout like this. I've never seen people marching like this. I've never seen people, white, black, brown, uh, coming out like this. I've seen people march, but I've never seen 50 states march for George Floyd, uh, for Stephon Clark, for Eric Garner. I've never seen it in that way. The closest thing I've seen to this is Trayvon Martin, uh, which was an international movement, and I believe which included many states across this country who stood up 
because that was a kid who was killed. But on a broad level, internationally, never seen a movement like this. And I do think it's a moment where not just all 50 states are on Washington, eyes are on Washington, D.C., but where the international sector is watching the United States to see how we handle this. And I think that this is a moment where um, where our legislators, both Democrats and Republicans, because they both have failed us in this area for a long time. And I know we're in a political year where everybody wants to be politically correct and really defend uh, defend Democrats. I get it. We, we're in serious need of electing a new president. But at the end of the day, uh, this is about real call to action and reform in an area where both parties have failed us. And I think that it will be a turning point. However, I challenge us to think deeply about what that turning point looks like and how we make the turn and who we make the turn with. I talked yesterday at a news conference about how important upon my returning to San Diego, how important it is for electeds to realize that this is work we have to do together. Uh, this is not work that we could do uh, that you could talk about reform and not do it with us. And so I hope the Democrats, Republicans, elected leaders alike realize this turning point and tap to it. Otherwise, we'll be helping them to get out of office and somebody else get in to represent our interests. You mentioned needing allies, not just when tragic events like this occur, but all year round, all the time. What would you like to see people doing? Well, I'd like to see people, uh, one, realize what they can do. We introduced yesterday uh, a proposal we're going to make to Congress and to the Senate to ask uh, the Congress and the Senate and to pass uh, a uh, legislation, federal law, banning the carotid, use of the carotid chokehold restraint and uh, put that on the president's desk ASAP. I think that we need to put this president to the test to see how serious he says he is in the regard to reform. But we also need to put the Democrats in Congress to the test. We have to ask ourselves, why did it take Nancy Pelosi so long to respond to this police shooting? Everything else has a quick response. Why did it take, you know, some of these leaders so long? Uh, yes, the president's childish and he's selfish and he's self-aggrandized. That's why he walked across the street to a church to get a photo op. But also, while he did that, there are Democrats who run through churches every Sunday to get photo ops during campaign season. So we need to see collective leadership that is not in self-aggrandizement or using this moment to politicize it but to actually bring deliverables to our community because we are no longer going to wait. And so what I think people could do, if you want to loot and riot, join our movement for reform. We need help campaigning the Congress to pass a ban on the use of, for police departments to use the carotid chokehold restraint nationwide. Join civil rights institutions if you want to be an ally. There's several of us, the People's Alliance for Justice, the NAACP, the San Diego Black Chamber of Commerce is in this area, the National Urban League. There's other tons of other grassroots community-based organizations. We're all located here in this region. And if people really want to know, then they should 
join our movement, you know, and, and, and then all it takes is becoming a member and becoming a part, write letters, support us. We're doing this work every day. And so people say, well, what do I do? I don't know where to donate. There's institutions that are 100% committed to this fight every day. And so simply by making a donation helps the cause that we wage every day of fighting. Standing with us physically is a good thing, but getting with us on the long-term train to reform is a better thing. And so we don't need marching allies. We need long-term allies. And so what I would say to people is, 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 is join this fight. The third thing I would say to our white allies, our white allies, our white brothers and sisters is call racism out when you see it. You see somebody being racist or or being or 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 being or or having bigotry language. Speak up against that. Don't affirm that. Don't walk by it. Your silence, your silence is causing this divide to go deeper. And so by not calling it out and not speaking to people and saying that's not right, that's not the perspective we're gonna have. You know, that doesn't solve the problem. So, you know, we really encourage people to join the reform movement and all of our organizations that do this work in racial justice are 100% committed to that work every single day. So that's my encouragement to everybody is join this movement for reform. Please get with us, move with us. We're ready to go, but we need you to stand with us and we need you to work with us. Get get your hands dirty. Get in get in the sandbox with us. Let's get to work. We got work to do. Um, and I promise that it will be refor- rewarding uh, to our long-term objectives. So on this podcast, we like to get a little personal and get to know the people who are making the news and that people think they know pretty well. Ask a few questions to get to know you a little better. Would that be okay? Sure. Okay, so we want to um, ask you what your upbringing was like here in San Diego. Well, my upbringing um, was I was born to uh, uh, Jose Martin and Kimberly Bacon. That's my mom and my dad. Uh, my mom was white. My dad was black. And I was born into a racially diverse family. I was um, born at Mercy Hospital in Hillcrest. And I... Uh, I, you know, was, uh, unfortunately, my dad and my mom didn't stay together. They they had me and then they uh, separated. They weren't married. Uh, and so I immediately, from the forefront, experienced broken household experience. And that was very challenging. Uh, fast forwarding through my younger childhood years, uh, probably about seven years old, uh, my dad, I was walking home from school one day uh, from Brooklyn Elementary at one point. I believe it's in South Park. That was where I went to elementary school at one point. And I was coming home from Brooklyn Elementary, little kid walking. And I looked up the street and saw this ambulance out front. I was living with my dad at the time. And I realized that they were pulling my dad out on a stretcher. And come to find out later, it was because my dad, uh, had cancer of the liver and he was at 
the the highest stage and he was uh, leaving the earth at some point. And so I got in the ambulance and I rode to hospice with him. Well, the hospital where they later transferred him to hospice and he uh, later passed away uh, a day later. So when I lost my dad, I went into the foster care system because my mother was a drug addict. And, um, and so when I went into the foster care system uh, in 2000, I was just eight years old. And I went in for the rest of my years. I didn't know that that was going to happen, but ultimately there was really nobody to take care of me. I had already lost so many family members and my dad was, uh, uh, you know, dead. And, uh, there was very few family members left. My grandmother was the only one in San Diego capable, but she was already at a, um, age, a too old of an age to take care of me. And the system, CPS, uh, child welfare services wouldn't let me go with, with her. So I got to see her on the weekends. I spent 13 years in foster care. I was moved around a lot, went through eight different placements in San Diego's foster care system. And uh, when I was 16, I, you know, in between, I'd say eight and 16, I got involved in various things. I was in a lot of pain, got involved, dabbled in gangs and drugs and various things in the Southeast San Diego community where I spent a lot of my years in foster care. And I went through a lot. Uh, navigating the pain of my childhood. But I also was very creative. Uh, when I was 16, I uh, I found my calling to preach uh, just shortly after receiving God into my life and, uh, you know, getting saved, which is what really what we call uh, just the accepting of, of, of God uh, into my life. And so when I accepted God, a few weeks later, I was sitting in my room and I felt like God had said, pick up these boxes. And I set up a podium and I put teddy bears out and I would preach those teddy bears every, every, uh, every, every Sunday. <laughs> That's at, so cute. Every Sunday at two o'clock, I would preach to those teddy bears after I went to church, I'd come home and preach a sermon. What'd you tell them? I, I would tell them everything. There's hope we can get through this, you know? Um, you know, and and I always realized that I was not uh, the, you know, the regular preacher. I always felt that I was on a different path. And I think because of my childhood, I think because of my experience. Uh, but uh, at the age of 16 as well, I was in school one day and I realized also that I had gotten a uh, call into the, the office. I didn't go to school uh, some days. I did a lot of skipping. And hanging out in the streets with the homeboys and a lot of different folks out there. And I was, you know, really, uh, you know, I was really running the streets, hanging out, going different places. Uh, you know, always, you know, always had a new girlfriend, uh, you know, and uh, I went through this, you know, whole experience of, 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 of the streets. You know, I went through my, my time in the streets. And, and so when, um, one day when I did go to school, I got a call to the principal's office 
and there was a my therapist. I would see a therapist weekly, uh, and my therapist, uh, her name was Carol Williams. She was there with social worker and uh, my foster mom, and they brought the information to me that my mom had died of a drug overdose, and that she was found in her apartment out in San Ysidro with pills and all kinds of things laid out. Um, I remember going to see my mom and seeing that she was struggling because I remember seeing her shoot heroin. Uh, uh, but I didn't, you know, I did not think that uh, that was the, I did not think that was, uh, you know, right. And I obviously was very concerned about my mom's drug problems and, you know, it, it, it really hurt me. Uh, because I would argue with my mom on a regular basis about ending her use of drugs and that it was selfish. We got in horrible arguments, but it was because I wanted her to end her drug use because I felt that I was going to lose her, and and I did. So uh, it's obviously the problem with drug use in this country. Um, and so losing my mom, it was very tough uh, for me at such a young age to have lost both of my parents. But navigating through those challenges, I, I, I believe, and I, I just want to share this portion because this is what started my journey on understanding racism on a deeper level. My mom's sister, which was the white side of my family, uh, came in from Austin, Texas to help to close everything out that my mom had, whatever it was, to clean out the house, to do this, to do that. And I'll never forget, you know, I walked up to my aunt at the church we were at. I would never forget, I, I, was, I lived with a very wicked foster mother at the time, probably for about three years, very abusive. I went through a lot of abuse in that foster home, completely neglected by the county of San Diego. They wouldn't take me out of this home uh, until they finally saw uh, one of my foster sisters that lived with me go to school with this big knot on her neck. And that was only when they decided that we needed to be taken out of this home. Uh, not That's not including all the things that she would do to us uh, and leaving us there uh, over the course of the weekend, sometimes with no food, uh, just all kinds of things, you know. And I remember her saying to me, you, you know, my my foster mother, uh, you know, hey, you, you know, you need to figure out how you're going to pay for the memorial. Anyway, uh, my aunt Stacy got in from Austin, Texas. She's white, my mom's sister. And I remember telling my aunt Stacy that, hey, I want to I want to go with you. I want out of foster care. I want to be out of this. I don't want to be in foster care. Is it possible that you could take me with you? I want to leave now. I'll go with you to Austin, Texas. I want to leave. And my aunt Stacy looked me in the eye and she said, Shane, I don't want to take you away from, from your roots here. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you resonate more with your black side. And I feel that it would be more necessary for you to stay here uh, with the black foster mother and everybody that you're already connected to uh, because, uh, you know, you, you resonate more with that side, your dad's side. And that, that statement to me was the def defining moment and was a defining moment in my life. 
where I realized that racism and this kind of thought process runs so deep that it runs in families. And I, as a child of mixed uh, uh, races, could actually experience this. That she forgot that I was, in fact, white and black, and that I wasn't, that I, I, I was, in fact, capable of living anywhere and still tapping into my, uh, my blackness. It's not dependent upon where I live or who I live with. So that really hurt me to see that her as a family member, seeing that she was mainly the last person who could take care of me and maybe provide me some more substance and some more uh, foundation, she decided not to. And that really uh, put me in pain. But I would say all of those experiences bottled together have put me in the position that I am in today to make sure the voiceless never have to go without a voice. That's why I fight for our foster kids in the county of San Diego and across this country, because these elected leaders make decisions without our vulnerable, our most vulnerable foster children. And they never ask them, how do you feel about it? What do you think about it? And so that experience that I had with my aunt was when I first realized how deep racism runs in this country. Do you still speak to her? Or have you spoken to her? I haven't spoken to her since then. My understanding is um, at one point, I believe during the Stephon Clark case, I was on national TV and I believe that she had reached out to my headquarters and asked to speak to me. But, um, you know, I, I, I quite honestly um, have been a little challenged getting past that, that whole experience. And it hurt me tremendously. I believe one day I will speak with her. I don't know when that will be. But I think that that experience really cultivated within me a deep frustration, a deep anger, a deep pain of, wow, you know, you won't even take your nephew that is in this system when, in fact, you could take custody of me and take me to Texas. To me, that was, that was a defining moment for my life. I'm, I'm so sorry that happened to you. That's truly terrible. Quote that sticks with me that I've heard both Martin Luther King Jr. use and President Obama that I really also like is that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. My question for you is, you're so young, you've already been involved in this work for quite a while. Do you, do you foresee having to do this for more of your life? What, what does the future look like for you and, and what you want this sort of journey as an activist and as someone involved deeply in racial uh, justice issues, how do you want the future to play out for you and for our country? Well, um, I think that's an interesting question. What I will say is that I plan to continue the work of activism, no matter what sector I go into, or no matter how I evolve into the next dimension of my leadership in this country. And I think that um, what people often do is they forgot, they forget, they get in positions and they forget where they come from or they forget what got them there. 
And I think that I plan to stay very well connected to my history, my story, my path and my journey of overcoming the deepest places of my own childhood and uh, the injustice that I suffered in the foster care system and all the experiences that I had, I plan to utilize all of those experiences and continue advocating for the voiceless. Now, what does that look like? Um, I think that I'm getting some direction on what that will eventually look like. Um, I think that I will continue to pray on it and I will continue to seek out uh, what the universe or where the universe is taking me um, in, in my leadership, but I will always take that activism, that advocacy, and that reform work with me uh, because no matter where I'm at, that is going to be necessary. So yes, I will continue uh, to advocate for the voiceless, no matter where they are, if it's a family, who's been killed to an unjust police shooting or if it is a or if it is a um, you know uh, uh, foster child who is in the system feeling unheard or if it is uh, you know someone's rights being violated in whatever context I will be there to stand up for them because they are the they are me they are me in my experience in, in foster care. They are the voiceless. They are the ones who are going through things and nobody wants to listen to them. But I will make sure that their voices are at the forefront of conversation and thought in this country, as long as I'm alive and as long as I do this work. So you obviously take care of a lot of people, fight for a lot of people. You've been flying around the country. You're always working on this issue, even when there isn't, you know, a big news story happening. How do you take care of yourself? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> um, I, I, I probably don't do good enough uh, at that. What I will say is that I do uh, tend to practice certain things. Uh, for example, uh, obviously, you know that our work has been my organization, the People's Alliance for Justice, uh, has worked very hard in this region during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we did some very extraordinary things in a very short period of time. For example, uh, my organization fed over a thousand homebound seniors across the county of San Diego and not just fed them, but delivered home household essentials. <clears throat> that they were in need of. We uh, started a legal aid task force for Asian Americans affected by discriminatory practices, uh, as well as to assist uh, uh, tenants who are unjustly evicted during the pandemic uh, and have actually are on the ground assisting uh, a few people now as we speak in regard to those experience. We uh, have fed over 2,000 people in the county, and I'm talking through food distributions that's separate from the senior outreach task force that we started. So we've worked very hard, and I had a lot of people ask me, well, what about you? What are you doing? You know, I think for, for me, um, you know, I utilize uh, natural medicines. So elderberry uh, is one of them. You get it at Sprouts. 
there's lots of good uh, apple cider vinegar. I take the shot of that in the morning. Um, I try to work out and I, you know, I do, you know, play a little basketball here and there. I love swimming. Um, you know, for my mental health, I like going to sit at the beach and, you know, and also, uh, hanging out with some very close friends of mine, uh, as well as, uh, my adopted family that I've had in my life, uh, over the course of the last 10 years, they've been in my life and been very close. So I spend a lot of time, uh, you know, when it's time to check out, I check out. If I have to leave for two weeks, I will do that. Because what I have figured out is when I get back, it'll still be going on. That You know, <laughs> the issues aren't going anywhere. So, um, you know, if I have to skip out for a week, I will. And uh, people will see me do that shortly here, pretty soon. But, um, you know, I, I do that. I, I get away if I have to. Um, you know, if I have to do a staycation or a vacation somewhere, I'm going to make it happen. And I love to travel outside of work travel and, um, and all of that. So, uh, you know, really, uh, really, I find very different ways to have a balance. And, and uh, I do try to practice that. It's hard sometimes, obviously, because your life is so committed to other people. But the older I get, the more I'm realizing uh, that I have to be just as committed to me as I'm committed to other people. Otherwise, if there's no me, there's if there's no me, then I can't fight for them. And so um, I'm becoming more and more committed to myself. Uh, obviously, during times like this, you know, it's a moment of emergency, a moment of urgency. Sometimes you skip yourself. Well, you bounce back and you try to catch yourself from the back end. And, uh, you know, I try to do my best at all of that that's so true if you're if you're not you know in good health and good spirits how can you help others although it seems that you do that no matter what in spite of that you mentioned the, the way you answered that question was to mention other people and other issues not yourself i noticed that too yeah today is the day of um george floyd's funeral i i imagine you would be there uh, you've been at others i just wondered without giving a full sermon um you know, what is something you would say if you were there today? We haven't really asked you about your reverend side or your, um, you know, work, work as, as per, with doing pastoring, but what would you say? What's something you would say? What I would say is what Dr. Martin Luther King said, what he shared in regard to the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. I would share that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen what the Bible says. I firmly believe that our faith is what we will need to pull in this moment. And I would encourage the family that is grieving to let them know that in this moment, there are a lot of people alongside of them, a lot of media talking about it. But one day there will be less and less stories as the weeks go on less and less cameras, less and less activism, and less and less marching, I would encourage them that we will be with them for the long haul. And we're 100% committed to long-term change and reform. But it is our faith 
that is going to give us the grounding to do that work. And that's what I would say. I would say that we must pull from our faith to ground ourselves for the fight that we have ahead of us. Because it is that spirituality and that grounding that will keep us and get us through this moment and the future of where we are headed. That's good stuff. I think a lot of people listening will also take a lot from hearing that. You know, this this podcast is called Name Drop because we like to ask people at the end to name drop someone or give a shout out to somebody who has changed their life or deserves a spotlight. And so for you, uh, who would that person be? Just first person that comes to your mind. Ah, uh, that's a hard question. <laughs> um, I hope that you name drop Nick Cannon because I'm trying to get him on the show. <laughs> I was gonna say Nick Cannon, but you know Nick Cannon's got enough. <laughs> did you guys know each other growing up, or did you just come uh, in contact through your work and kind of being national figures? Yeah, probably about six years ago, we got to know each other. We grew up not that far from each other, but obviously, he's like a whole generation ahead of me. But mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I'm going to go ahead and name drop somebody that uh, I think has been very impactful for for me and uh, has been sort of a mentor, somebody that I have a lot of respect for, um, and his name is Hamid Abdur-Rahim. He's the president of the National Black Contractors Association. And Hamid has been a big help to me in my development as a civil rights activist. He's one of the first people that actually uh, gave me, brought me into the space of advocating for economic equity uh, among for communities that are underrepresented in in the economic structure of our society, which has led me into a different phase of my activism. And so I really want to commend him. And I think that he's uh, an important leader who, who is often not known in the media, but uh, runs a, a major institution that a lot of people need to always know about the national black contractors association was founded by him and the building in Southeast San Diego on 61st and Imperial was built by George Stevens, a former San Diego city council member who, and the former deputy mayor, uh, George Stevens was a historic leader in San Diego politics. Uh, and many people say, I remind them of George Stevens, uh, but Hamid Abdurrahim is somebody I definitely think you all should talk to. He's definitely somebody that um, has done tremendous work fighting for, particularly advocating for black contractors to have access to the construction workforce. And so I want to commend him because uh, he's done things in support. He allowed us to open up a warehouse operation during COVID-19 to do all the work we did. Uh, out of his building and uh, 
he's just a very strong leader in this region. And so I have to commend him and I have to say I'm dropping his name today. Nice. Shane, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Name Drop San Diego. We hope if you enjoyed this episode, you'll share it with a friend and check out some of our other recent interviews with San Diegans like astronaut Ellen Ochoa and composer Anthony Davis, whose opera on the Central Park Five received the 2020 Pulitzer Prize in Music. Special thanks this week to Fox 5 San Diego for some of the audio we used in this piece. If you have a suggestion for who we should interview next, do some of your own name dropping by emailing us and letting us know. Our email address is namedropsd at gmail.com.